starting a co-design workshop with a story rather than facts and figures of, of maybe a beneficiary of your organisation is a really great place to start. And it's also a place of creating that sharedness and that sense of we're all in this together. I think it's about really um, bringing the issues to life and really about making it resonate with everybody in the organisation, but including the leaders. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Collective Engagement for Social Purpose podcast, a collaboration between GovComs and the University of Adelaide's Dr. Taylor Wilmot and Professor Jody Conjut. Today's episode is the sixth and final instalment of this series where we are sharing with you the wisdom and insights from a multi-year, multi-phase Australian Research Council funded discovery project. Now, if you are yet to listen to the previous episodes from this series, could I recommend that you go back to the beginning and listen to episodes one and two, where we introduce the Collective Engagement for Social Purpose project, while episodes three and four feature the impressive leaders from industry, including the Obesity Collective's Tiffany Petra and Orange Skies' Lucas Patchett. Our most recent episode, episode five, features Professor Ingo Carpen, who is a professor of business and design at the University of Adelaide and Karlstad University in Sweden. In that particular episode, Ingo discussed the role and importance of compassion in collectively engaging a group of people toward a shared social purpose. So all of those episodes are available for you to download and stream at your convenience. And I would encourage you to do so before you jump into today's episode, because today, joined by Professor Jody Conchute and Dr. Taylor Wilmot from the University of Adelaide, Jody is the lead investigator on the ARC-funded Collective Engagement Towards Social Purpose Project and has been working closely with Taylor on the analysis of the qualitative data from interviews with 35 community engagement managers of social purpose organisations. And the big thing today is that we will be getting the top seven tips for leaders looking to engage groups of people towards a social purpose. But before we get into that, a big welcome to both Jody Conjute and also to Taylor Wilmot. Um, Jody, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be back again. And Taylor, uh, a very big welcome to you as well. Thanks for having me back, David. Okay, so Taylor, let's let's talk to you perhaps first, just to set up before we get towards the top seven tips. But just to um, bring the audience uh, into the work that you've been doing since we last spoke, which was in episode five when we were talking with Ingo Carpen. What sort of work have you been up to in that interim period? Yeah, David. So as you mentioned, we have uh, completed our interviews with community engagement managers and leaders of social purpose organisations. So we spoke with 35 uh, different interviewees um, 
And a lot of them were from diverse backgrounds and were tackling a range of courses from um, obesity, alcohol, sanitation and hygiene, um, period poverty, homelessness, mental illness, refugee and migrant employment, domestic and family violence, uh, volunteering, youth empowerment, energy use and, and issues around sustainability. And so from there... We have been working on analysing that qualitative data using an abductive approach. Um, and abductive reasoning usually, for those who are unfamiliar, usually involves applying a combination of inductive and deductive logic. Um, and the data were, were analysed following an iterative process as the team coded independently uh, and then met to discuss the main and um, kind of supplementary themes identified in, in our respective analyses. And so that's where the top seven tips that we are going to share with you today have come from. And they're essentially a higher level summary of the key insights that have come out of our abductive analysis. So just in terms of that, um, just to get these definitions right, so can you give us an example of that abductive reasoning and just exactly how is it that you look at qualitative data? What, what might be some of the questions that you look at going through both that um, inductive stage and also the deductive stage? Yeah, so I guess in the context of our project, we went in with a phenomena, so collective engagement, and the context was around social purpose. And we had a theory around engagement that that happens at an individual level. So we know that you need to have cognitive, emotional uh, and behavioural engagement for individuals to, to be engaged towards a focal object, whether it's a brand or whether it's a social cause. Uh, and so what we were really looking at is how do you transition um, from that individual level engagement toward a brand or a cause to actually getting the group level engagement. And the abductive side of the analysis came in um, when I started going through the codes with that lens, looking at engagement towards a social cause. Uh, and we it started to see emer what we call emergent themes come through. Um, an example is in episode five, when we spoke with Ingo about compassion, that was really an inductive theme um, that came out of the data. It wasn't something that we went in looking for, but it was actually something that came through strong from participants, the important role of compassion in transitioning from that individual level engagement to that uh, collective or group level engagement and all the practices that surround compassionate um, behaviour. So, does that answer your question? Hopefully, yeah. No, that's that that um, exactly um, uh, answers the question. So thanks very much um, for that answer. But to you, Jody, um, again in this period, I know Taylor's probably been doing a lot of the heavy heavy lifting. But as the sort of lead um, researcher, um, investigator, I should say, on this particular project, what's what's been your experience of of what's come to pass so far? And how does it compare with other um, projects that you've done in the past? Uh, David, this has been a really fascinating um, project that we've done. I think we have really enjoyed, isn't always the right word when you're talking to people in the social purpose sector, but I think we've been really um, engaged and stimulated by the people that we've spoken to. There's such expertise out there and such kindness that people are actually um, giving to our community. So we've really been able to immerse ourselves in understanding their experiences and learning so much from the people that we've spoken to. I think the insight that we've got, you know, Taylor spoke before about, you know, the fact that 
um, our findings are really emergent. We, we have gone in not really knowing what to expect and we really are learning from people that um, are living this every day and really understanding what's working for them and what, what's not working. And it's our pleasure to be able to share, I guess, that best practice back to your community and um, you know, more broadly. Yeah, and I would, again, encourage people to go back and have a listen to some of those earlier episodes because the they're fascinating, um, the work that was done and the stories um, that were told by um, Tiffany and Lucas and Ingo, uh, just really uh, fabulous um, stories and certainly high-quality conversations that I'm sure everyone will get a lot from. So... Okay, let's get to those top seven tips. And Jody, I might start with you. Uh, number one has come out as people first. What exactly does people first mean? And how do you put people first? As in understanding people first, David, it, it really comes from having, as you know, Ingo and um, Taylor spoke about last time, you know, that compassion for people. But it's really about understanding the humanity, the human relationships, um, and really having those um, people um, at the table um, and really actively listening to what they have to say. Um, perhaps Taylor, you could you know expand on this one a little bit more, even. So. Yeah, I think the people first tip is really around coming back to us all being, you know, having sharing the human experience together. And I think we all go through pain and hardship and struggles and at times we'll need help and assistance from others. And coming back to our core as, as humans before starting to engage in, in a social cause as a collective is, is really important. And so understanding each individual in, in the room as, as a person first and, and that they come with their own unique background and experience as well as, you know, the sharedness that we all have and, you know, identifying what are our shared values and what are some of the beliefs and mindsets that we're all coming um, together with and, and how can we leverage some of those um mindsets, beliefs and, and resources in the room, but also are there any that we need to identify that potentially aren't going to be productive for advancing the social cause? And, and so really understanding the people in the room and, and leveraging strengths and weaknesses. And I think once you're in relationship with each other and everyone that's at the table working together, then you can identify the common threads that some of our participants spoke about. And, and that really is the empathy and the compassion at that group level um, that you're able to draw upon once you know each other. So you can't develop empathy and move through to compassion if you don't know the personal stories of, of the other people in the room before commencing work with each other. So really just getting people to, to talk about the challenges that they've faced and um, and connecting uh, behaviourally as well as emotionally um, and spiritually uh, perhaps as well. So, Taylor, was it the experience of the participants, the, the 36 interviewees that you engaged with, that mm. this is something that is done well or it's not done well, that we often don't take the time to get to know each other, don't take the time to understand each other before we're trying to find solutions? It was certainly highlighted as uh, potentially a barrier to achieving strong collective engagement within a group. And I think 
when spoken about in terms of a barrier, it was more so we don't have time or we don't have the resources or we don't have the expertise in order to build that culture. Um, but then at the same time, we had some really good kind of, I would call best practice examples of organisations who had engaged uh, people that had expertise in co-design, for example, that were able to bring a group of diverse people together, really sit down and engage as humans first. Um, and as I said, identify those uh, mindsets, those values and, and beliefs before starting to, to work together and create that shared sense of social purpose. And I do think that there's a really important role of leadership in that process of becoming people first. It needs to start from the top. Uh, and the leader can't just come in, you know, one of our participants said at the end, the leader can't come in for the final 15 minutes of the co-design workshop and thank everyone so much for their time and for showing up. The leader has to be there as a participant and, and someone who is managing their power dynamics in the room and is able to step back, as I said, and, um, you know, recognise that everyone has unique strengths and weaknesses, including themselves, and how best can we leverage them and make sure that everyone feels like their voice will be heard in the room. Did you get any insights as to how do you do that? Because I think a lot of people listening would be thinking, it's impossible to try to get my my boss or my leader or my higher-ups to attend a meeting, let alone, you know, a workshop of a few hours. Were there any insights as to how you can do that, how you can engage leadership to get them to understand the importance of leader-led participation, uh, empathy, understanding, patience, and all of those things that go to creating that trusted environment. But again, often elusive in a world when there's so, in a world where there is always many, many other competing challenges uh, and demands on your time. Yeah, we, we certainly did get some insights on, on how that can be achieved. I think firstly, you do need to get the buy-in of the leader or the leadership team. And that really comes down to explaining that the quality of, of insights and outcomes of a, of a collaborative process are really enhanced if you do have that um, people first mentality and that people first leadership. And, you know, linking that back to the quality of outcomes of a co-design workshop, for example, is the first step in getting the, you know, the leadership team to buy into that. And I think on a very practical level, um, in terms of, you know, leaders embodying the people first, it's them understanding, uh, particularly within a social purpose context, that the beneficiaries of the work they're doing are people and, and humans and um, and keeping them in mind. I think storytelling is a really, really good tool and starting a co-design workshop with a story rather than facts and figures of, of maybe a beneficiary of your organisation is a really great place to start. And it's also a place of creating that sharedness and that sense of we're all in this together. Um so, yeah, certainly storytelling is one good example. I think there's a, there's a range of um, different sort of positive psychology and resilience building training that, that can be offered prior to those workshops. And I know a few of the participants we spoke about um, emphasise the importance of training prior to facilitating a co-design workshop. So I definitely encourage leaders to, to kind of look into doing some of that training before they step out and participate in, in a co-design workshop. All right, so... Number two on the uh, top seven tips is make it tangible. What does that mean? 
So I think um, for us, David, it actually is really nice to sort of build on the discussion you were just having with Taylor. I think it's about really um, bringing the issues to life and really about making it resonate with everybody in the organisation, but including the leaders. Um, one of the things that we found, um, which I guess isn't surprising, but a lot of people that were involved with the social purpose organisation have often have lived experience of that organisation. And so they come to the table really re ready to share their, their experience to, as, as Taylor said, engage in sort of storytelling and, you know, building on your, your question before, David, I think it's important that not just the leaders but everyone in the organisation hears about that experience because it's only with that really deep understanding and almost feeling the, um, the emotional connection as well that from someone having gone through it that we can start to have a, a common understanding of where we want to go um, and really connect with those people. So... This, you know, making it relevant. Um, we see that if, you know, um, <laughs> hurry. if people can use things like storytelling, if they can, um, you know, have guest speakers at events, if they can have people that are sort of sharing their stories, even through perhaps marketing campaigns, this is allowing people to not just look at some of the facts and figures that are happening, but really understand that true lived experience that the people that they're trying to help have been through. Um, we heard some really great ex examples, David, perhaps if I share one with you, of an organisation that was looking to support uh, an organisation in the area of homelessness. And they had a guest presenter come and talk from the organisation. But actually a member, an employee from that organisation stood up and spoke about the experience that they'd had of homelessness. And, you know, to say that there almost wasn't a dry eye in the room of, of hearing this colleague that they'd all worked with and her experience of homelessness just really made it real. It made it tangible. It really resonated then with the people in the room that this isn't somebody that's just out on the street. This could be any one of us. And, you know, in bringing it to life that way just really allows people to connect it allows them to really focus on what's important um, and then I guess all you know pull together to achieve that and for you Taylor in terms of that making it tangible making it relevant what were the what were the key takeaways for you yeah, to echo what Jody said and also to build on some of those insights, I think participants really emphasise the importance of emotional connection. We know that being cognitively engaged, uh, you know, through facts and figures about people living with homelessness or, or um, you know, or experiencing uh, insecurity in their housing situation, it certainly can be compelling, but it's actually those personal stories of people who have experienced homelessness and the circumstances surrounding that that brings in that emotional connection and we find that it's an emotional connection that tips people from you know potentially having empathy um, for people experience homelessness to that compassion component of actually wanting to give their time to the organization or to give funds to the organization to really show their compassion and and take action to make a difference all right uh, number three on the uh, top seven is to create access points. So, um, Jody, what does create access points mean? Well, I guess, David, it's important that we can 
allow the right people to, to essentially be in the room and to work with us around a number of things. So, for example, we want to, if we're going to go from a whole group of individuals working together or working on a social purpose towards a collective working together on that social purpose, we need to make sure that people have the opportunity to join, but also that we've got the right people in the room who are able to move things forward. So very much we're seeing that, you know, we've got to reach out so that we can touch people nationally all around Australia, that they can come together, that we have really good then diversity of thought, that we've got people with a range of lived experiences um, and so that therefore we're starting to cover and understand um, the diversity of issues. Um, most of the people we've spoken to when they talk about social purpose, it's not an easy fix, it's not a silver bullet. We're talking about really complex systems and complex structures and the more people with you know, um, different resources, different expertise that we can um, bring together through various access, access points will really help us to achieve that common goal. So, Taylor, could you give us some examples of um, this uh, notion of creating access points? Is it about uh, making sure that you're engaged with people both in an offline way and an online way through multiple channels over time? Or how is it that you can enable the right people to have the right information at the right time? Yeah, certainly. I think it's really has to be focused on removing barriers uh, to participation. And that comes down to simplicity uh, in your onboarding processes and your recruitment processes and removing friction. So to give you an example, if organisations were to send out a newsletter that included, you know, a, a link potentially to their website and how you can learn more about volunteering, as opposed to in that email and that communication, having a direct link to the form to provide your details and be linked. Um, you know, with a volunteer manager at the organisation. So it's about removing that middle step that really is unnecessary and creates friction for people who would want to participate. Um, and I think it's also, you know, we had participants talk about the impact of COVID. That obviously added more friction uh, for people that wanted to volunteer at some organisations where there was face-to-face -face contact. And then looking at innovating in different ways in which they could simplify that recruitment and onboarding process so that they didn't lose volunteers. And they did speak about, um, you know, the more steps you have in order to sign up or join an organisation, the more likely you are to lose a volunteer. So I think it's really stripping away unnecessary steps in that process in order to get more people um, on board and to join a collective. So, Jody, to you, uh, number four in the top seven tips is get the right people in the room. You started to answer that in your um, earlier uh, response that you gave, but what do you mean by getting the right people in the room and how do you determine who the right people are? Yeah, this one was really interesting for us as researchers, David, because before we started on this journey, I think we had an implicit assumption that to really have a collective you wanted people that um, had a lot of synchronicity between them, that they were all sort of working towards this, you know, a common goal, that they all had a common agenda. And when we started talking to our interviewees, one of the things that came up quite a bit was the need for diversity, the need to actually have different opinions. Um, and one of the challenges that we therefore talked about is, well, how do you get those people with differing goals 
you know, differing reasons why they're in the room to actually come together. And, and this is where we found that some of the co-design workshops that Taylor talked about were really critical and really important. But I think also with that is once you have those people in the room, the importance of really creating partnerships and really getting that community buy-in. You know, I've, you know, people were talking about we needed to move forward, we need councils, we need key volunteers, we need governments, we need funders, we need industry partners. You know, we need people that have, as I said before, had the lived experience or who are the beneficiaries. And if we can have all of those people together with a similar agenda, all moving in the same direction, you know, this is when we're going to be really effective for that collective engagement towards a social purpose. So it's identifying who needs a seat at that table and making sure that they're there. Um, and, and we've had some really great examples of things that were achieved because, if anything, people just drop tools, they almost, you know, um, walked away from the business as usual or their, you know, other um, agendas to really work together to make a difference you know, in various spaces. That to me sounds like it would require a high degree of skill to manage um, those interactions because effectively you're, in, you're inviting um, tension into the conversation that you're not just having a whole set of fellow travellers, you know, sitting there agreeing with each other. How important is it for people to have the right skill in order to manage these conversations appropriately? I think it's people having the right skill or finding the right person that, you know, is the, the conduit to bring everyone together. Um, I'm thinking of, of one sector that we spoke to where, in fact, the different groups and the different organisations, although they still had the same social purpose, almost were competing against each other for funding, um, were almost starting to get into competition or undermining each other's efforts to ensure that their organisation was remaining effective. Now, bringing them together into one collective and having a similar agenda it almost stripped those things away a little bit. It wasn't an easy, um, you know, effort. And there were some more stories that came out as well. But as a, a complete sector, that the ground that they were able to make and the changes that they were able to make were, you know, much more than if they were acting all independently. And so, yes, definitely some skill involved there, David, or somebody that's prepared to take on the challenge to actually get everybody in the room. So, Taylor, number five is create a safe space. What does that mean? Yeah, so creating a safe space is all around the idea of providing a, a meeting point, essentially, and whether that's physical or an emotional uh, space for people to come to. Um, and, and, you know, emotional in the sense that people can can come together and feel safe and secure in that space to uh, express themselves, to share their opinions openly and honestly without fear of judgment or, or blame is really important. And all of our participants really emphasise the importance of having a meeting place or space and it didn't have to be physical it could be online um, but it did have to allow for that psychological safety so people could could feel comfortable uh, contributing and participating and did you have to leave that space open uh, beyond the consultative period where did you allow people to uh, or were people saying that there, there should be places where people can continue to contribute outside perhaps formal the more um, formal engagements that are organised? 
Yes, we did have an array of participants who had, you know, done co-design workshops in the beginning or, or as you said, the kind of the consultation phase of their project uh, and potentially had left it there. But then we had some other, uh, I would say, more best practice examples of those who who managed to hold space over time and to continue engaging, whether it's with their beneficiaries, their funders, their partners or all together at once, you know, whether they're meeting twice a year or, or quarterly to have those conversations and revisit the social purpose to ensure that alignment is still there and, and they're still all on the same page. Um, so I do think we did have a spectrum, but certainly I think it's important that you do maintain that space in order to continue engaging uh, over a longer period of time at the group level. So Jody, um, number six on the top seven is empower people. Yeah, look, David, the point of having collective engagement rather than having lots of people do their own thing is that when you're part of that collective, you can be empowered to, to make change and actually have a much larger voice. So one of the things that we heard was that you know, we really need to, once the group's established or the collective's there, to get out of the way sometimes or at least to empower the group and let them be the change, let them make the change that they're there to, to make. Um, and this goes for both, I guess, the people that are within the organisation or within the structure that are trying to sometimes assist beneficiaries. But I think more importantly, it's also for those participants who um, have had the experience of that social purpose and empowering them to actually make change and know that they can have a voice, know that they have support to sort of move forward and part of what we spoke about before, showing them that compassion with what they're doing to, um, yeah, put ideas forward, see them through and just be empowered. And I actually have a quote, David, that, you know, there's one of our respondents said, you know, because these people have been disempowered for such a long time and made to feel like they have no power, you know, that part of what this organisation was doing was helping them to remember that they have independent personal power but also understand that what they haven't had is institutional power. And by making them part of a collective group, David, that's really what we're doing. We're giving them institutional power, power to change the whole system, not just their life within the system, which is really important. How important is it that, as you say, that people are empowered for success? Uh, are people wary or did you see examples of people where, uh, examples where people were... Uh, disempowered by perhaps um, participating in good faith, but then seeing that whatever had been decided or agreed um, wasn't followed through because the people who ultimately had the power weren't prepared to cede it. I think in some of these instances, David, we have one chance. You know, these people come, they put all of their self as Taylor said at the outset, it's their emotional engagement as well as their behavioural engagement into trying to enact change for social purpose. If we don't follow through with those initiatives, they very quickly do disengage or become disenfranchised um, and therefore you know, we don't get or don't see that engagement again. Um, but I do have to say we need to be careful with empowerment. There were some people we spoke to that... Um, didn't want to sort of take part and we actually need to also empower them to choose when and where and how much they actually take part, you know, within the social purpose organisation as well. We, we can't force people to come to the table. And Taylor, the final uh, and seventh uh, top tip is about celebrating success. Why, why is that important? 
I think celebrating success is almost the way in which you energise the group or the collective. And a lot of these social purpose causes are very, uh, you know, they're tough um, topics and they come with a lot of pain, suffering and struggle. And I think oftentimes they're intractable problems. They, you know, there's no, as Jody said, there's no silver bullet to a lot of these causes. And so I think over time, um, participants of a collective can potentially become a little bit demotivated um, by the process of investing so much time and resources and not seeing, you know, immediate or short-term outcomes from, from their efforts. So I think it's important as a collective to come together and celebrate the smaller wins that are happening along a process, um, you know, that can take years, if not decades, in order to see real change. And we you know, we saw a lot of participants shared with us the way in which they um, celebrate and, and share success among their teams. So some of them spoke about more formalised ways of doing that, so award ceremonies and offering trophies to um, volunteers within the organisation or employees who have made, you know, significant contributions. But we also saw more informal ways, which was through storytelling. Um, so employees might, you know, share a story of someone that they'd met through through the organisation who'd been a beneficiary of the cause and, and you know, shared how important um, the help was that they received. And, and sharing those stories back with the organisation is a, is a key part and continuing to motivate people and see that they are actually having an impact um, in the work that they're doing. Okay, so that wraps up the top seven tips um, for this um, particular research uh, project, this multi-year, multi-phase Australian Research Council discovery project. But Jody, what what are the next steps? What do you, what do you do with this work now that you've got it to, to where it is now? Well, we're really excited that our next steps are going to be continue to um, refine and share this information, David. So immediately we will look to sort of refine and disseminate a conceptual framework that really is going to capture those mechanisms for transitioning engagement from that individual level to the collective level. And the first place we're doing that is actually this week at a conference, the Frontiers in Service Conference, which is being held in Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Um, eventually, we'll also put this framework up on our web website so that businesses can use it as a guide for developing collective engagement in their social purpose context. Um, we'd also probably put these seven tips as well up on our website so that they're there for people to refer to also. And so it's been quite a uh, comprehensive piece of work, hasn't it? You know, lots of uh, databases, lots of studies, lots of um, lots of inputs to to help you to get to this point of you know having that basis for a conceptual framework. It. it- it has been indeed. And in fact, Taylor and I are supervising a PhD student at the moment that's been working on um, reviewing all of the literature that's out there in this area to help us to develop a measurement tool. Um, we'd like to be able to offer businesses and the academic community, but a way of actually measuring and assessing the cognitive, the emotional, the behavioural, the spiritual engagement 
that you know the the um, people that are involved in the social purpose context have, and this can actually work to help businesses to look at where they need to continue to improve, where they can refine, you know, sort of that engagement amongst their own. I don't want to say employees, employees, volunteers, um, partners that are in this process. So trying to get some really practical outcomes from all of that information that we have. Yeah. Well, I imagine you'll also find a lot of interest in uh, in, in government as well. Uh, Absolutely. In, interestingly, the... Uh, the APS, the Australian Public Service Reform uh, Program, one of its priorities is in fact exactly this, of is, uh, is building the skills such that uh, public servants are more able um, to uh, participate in, lead where, where it's appropriate, um, but certainly to understand and to bring together uh, collectives um, such that they can solve uh, problems in the best interests of uh, uh, of the Australian community. So uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest uh, from the public sector. But Taylor, um, for you, what's next for you? Yeah, I think we're working towards a longer term plan of being able to test the collective engagement for social purpose uh, framework that we've been working on developing and will refine, as Jody says, over the next couple of months uh, so that we can get it to a point where we can involve organisations who are interested in improving or enhancing uh, engagement within their organisation um, perform a you know a brief intervention and and do a pre and post evaluation of that intervention that will target cognitive emotional behavioral uh, and spiritual engagement so uh, we can help organizations on a very uh, practical level um, and functional level to to enhance their collective engagement efforts how long can you keep going with this sort of work because to me it would seem that there is so much uh, to be learnt, so much to be understood, uh, so many uh, elements of society that would require this type of uh, collective engagement. But are you able to to sustain it without research funding, or does it does when the money dries up, the uh, the research dries up as well? That's a um, an interesting question, David. I guess when the money drives up, the research slows down. Hopefully, not to, to not to a standstill. Um, but you know, we would be looking at also working, as Taylor mentioned, with industry partners, looking at how we could potentially, you know, both consult and research in this space. And I think there are many avenues for us to really understand in a lot more detail. Um, and our hope would be that we can continue to build on our team and continue to you know build this into the future. Fantastic. Well, Professor Jody Conjute and Dr. Taylor Wilmot, thank you um, so much for inviting Content Group to be involved in this six-part series because it's been absolutely fabulous. And I, we have uh, encouraged people at the beginning of the program uh, to go back and listen to those earlier episodes. Um, the first two, which really set it up, um, to really where the path was going to, then working in with those uh, industry experts. And then in episode five, where we worked with Professor Ingo Carpen to understand uh, the, his insights around the uh, research. And I, I remember that uh, the discovery of compassion uh, as a real moment for me uh, in that as well. So thank you so much for participating in this wonderful series. Uh, it's now there. It's, it's an asset for people to go back and listen to and draw from and all the very best with the next stages of the research program. And thank you, David, for the opportunity and for your support of our project. 
And thanks to you, the audience, for, for being engaged and involved because I think this is such um, a vitally important part of unpicking these uh, just complex, wicked problems that society is dealing with. Um, but to really have uh, the insights from this high-quality research and we, there we can see those top seven tips that are just going to help you uh, understand how you can go through it. And, and as we understand and see this conceptual framework as it comes together, it's going to be such a useful tool um, both for the private and for the public sector as well. So please stay connected to the team at the, at the University of Adelaide and keep following. Um, this particular project because it is such an important uh, piece of work, the collective engagement for social purpose. So a big thanks to you and again, a big thanks to Jodie Conjute and Taylor Wilmot. My name is David Pembroke. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.